Hi, and welcome to the Digiday Podcast at Cannes. I'm Michael Berge, Senior Editor with Digiday, and I'll be your host for a series of bonus episodes from the Cannes Lion Festival. Every day this week, I'll be bringing you interviews with CEOs and founders who are going to speak to things like the power of AI, the blending of media and creative, what's going on with the culture wars, and fighting the good fight on sustainability. In today's episode, I walk down Yacht Row with Tom Triscari, an independent analyst who writes a regular column on ad tech and programmatic called Quo Vadis. You should subscribe. Tom and I picked out a handful of interesting ad tech and martech companies that he handicapped by their potential as well as their challenges. And here's what we came up with. So Tom, we just walked along Yacht Row and checked out all the ad tech and programmatic firms along with some other interesting appearances by the likes of S- FCB. Um, I think we saw Accenture Song. Song. Yeah, uh, an interesting lineup of companies. But what I'd love to get from you as a really smart analyst of this business is let's go through a couple of these companies and I'd love to get your take on you know, what, what they do, what their potential is, and then what the challenges are. Yeah. Um, and I, before just going into the individual ones, you know, there's that broader view, right? So for example, there is this, you know, ad tech money that leaves a DSP within programmatic, which is largely what's out there in Yacht Row, except for these kind of other interesting companies that play along the supply chain, meaning Song or Vinar, um, Paramount's there, et cetera. But, um, in pure ad tech is slated to grow. It grew around 7% revenues in aggregate in 2022. Revenue growth tends to decline as industries mature. So we'll see what happens in 2023, but it's they're all out there um, trying to make deals. There was an interesting point that um, somebody made to me yesterday, which was around, hey, you got the second half of the year. So if you're on Yacht Row, you're there to close out some deals because revenue is tight. There's consolidation and... Um, you know, I think there's some concern out there around that top line growth. And therefore, what what, what are you left with? You're left with maybe some cost cutting yeah. if you're going to make your number. So they're all out there trying to make deals for the investment they put into the yachts, which is not cheap. We were guessing probably well into the six figures to run one of those yachts, right? Yeah, it's it's a it's got to be a fairly big number. Plus yep. the staff, plus the people they bring and everything else around it. Right, exactly. All right. Well, um, no, thanks for that preface. That's a good way to set things up. I'd like to start with IAS, mm-hmm. Integral Ad Science. Uh, yes. So what what are they in? So Integral Ad Science is an ad verification company or also known as a content verification company yep. um, to uh, provide, monitor and provide um, reporting around ad quality and ad quality generally would fall into, you know, Bot fraud, which comes in various types, or ad fraud, which comes in various types, yeah. viewability and brand safety, and then newer areas like, for example, attention metrics. So IAS, they have uh, they have a deal with Lumen Research, yep. and then Double Verify. I'm not sure if they have a deal with someone like Adelaide or if they invented their own attention metrics, but we'll get to Double Verify later. But those would be um, two competitors in that space, and so that's what they provide. They provide. In my view, it's very simple from an econ point of view. I buy something, what was the underlying quality of the thing that I bought? And they're supposed to tell me something about that underlying quality. So clearly a need for this. Clearly a need. So 
obviously great potential for this company to do quite successfully. Yeah. What would you say the challenges are? Well, so it's interesting because unlike certain companies in the supply chain, DSPs or SSPs, ad verification companies, they'll have business with direct advertisers. They've got contracts with agencies, DSPs, SSPs, and publishers. So they've got a lot of sort of uh, diversification within who they sell to, which is great. But um, I think going forward, um, they're interesting businesses. They've had a pretty good track record, both IAS and Double Verify as public companies. But like I said, I do worry a little bit. I would be worried a little bit more about where revenue growth is going to come from in the future. And I also worry a little bit about if I'm them and generally in the ecosystem, I would be worried about what is the accuracy of the ad quality that they're reporting on. What I mean by that is this. If you have a telescope and you're only looking at one star, you only know something about that one star. Right. But ad fraud comes in a lot of different types, okay? That's just the ad fraud subject. And if you expand your telescope out and you say, no, we're gonna look at the universe. Well, ad fraud might register like it almost always does across the board for every brand when they get the reports. It'll say one only sub 1% was ad fraud, so everything's great but they're only looking at one star. Yeah. When you start to widen the lens out and look, and look at, at the, the, the whole universe, like, and then when you put a James Webb telescope up there and start to think, you start to question whether the Big Bang happened the way we thought it did, you might get a much different and a much higher fraud number when you start to look at the whole universe, right? That's, and that's something I think that's percolating in the markets. And so that's something for them to be aware of and to take those steps, I think, to deliver more accuracy in a wider lens of what they're looking at to report on ad fraud in particular. Viewability is a different subject because that's all based on MRC standards, which is a whole different subject. Yeah. And we might touch on that when we talk about video amp, if we talk about video okay. amp. So, okay. So we've also kind of touched on double verify when we talked about IAS. Any different uh, potential to double verify or challenge to double verify than, than IAS? Because they are essentially in very similar businesses. Not so much that I can see. I mean, these are to me in economics, they're like substitute products. You know, you can substitute one for the other. I mean, if Coke you go, or Pepsi. Yeah, exactly. Um, if you go butter and margarine, right? <laughs> if anybody uses margarine anymore. Um, but uh, so you could go, if you go back 10 years, you would have, when all the competition really first started and these companies were younger and they're venture funded, you would have, for example, a brand saying, no, I'm going to have moat for viewability. I've got double verify for uh, ad fraud and I've got IAS for brand suitability, brand safety. That's all consolidated either at the brand or the agency level on behalf of the client. They only use one for all three services. So they pretty much have split the market more or less. Um, their financial structures are generally very, very similar. If you look at their income statement and their balance sheet, um, with a couple exceptions, but nothing crazy. And then, so they're substitute goods. And so in that regard, it really is in some ways, they probably wouldn't like me saying this. It's really hard to differentiate to me. They're very commoditized types of services. It's like insurance. It's barely, it can be, you can view both companies in the service they provide. And I've heard this directly from you know, VPs of marketing, CMO types who were going through contractual process to pick one of these companies. And they've come to the realization that they kind of look like an insurance policy, right? They're a throat to yes. choke. Yep. If something goes wrong 
with if your ad gets placed somewhere, you know, you're a big known brand, you're PNG or Unilever or Ford, yeah. and your brand, your your ad ends up where it's not supposed to go. Mm-hmm. Um, they were supposed to protect to protect you from that. So, you know, crap rolls downhill and you want a throat to choke. You're like, hey, at least I have some protection there and it, I can move that conversation downstream and away from me the responsible brand manager because I hired them for a reason. So there is an insurance policy mechanism there. And by the way, I think anytime you can be in the insurance business, it's a great place to be. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> you look at the insurance company's uh, financial results and they're doing just fine. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on to uh, Magnite. Yes. And I think OpenX, we we were yes. talking about doing these in kind of pairs. Yeah. We, we said, I said Noah's Ark and you said no, Noah's, Noah's Yacht. yacht. Exactly. So uh, describe just for a moment what Magnite and OpenX do. Again, um, to me, commoditized SSP services for the for the most part. Now, there's something interesting about Magnite. Um, but I'll get to that in a second. So they're SSPs. Uh, they take, you know, they represent publisher inventory um, on a non-exclusive basis because publishers have many SSPs that they're running, uh, generally speaking. And so um, one distinction, of course, is... Magnite is a public company made up of many other companies and acquisitions along the way, um, SpotX, Teleria, et cetera, and the original Rubicon. And then OpenX is really just an independent sort of SSP sitting out there, but, uh, but on the, you know, it, within a sort of a best of breed type of SSP. Um, so again, to me, when I'm a, if I'm a publisher, I could be running on OpenX, I could be running also on Magnite, Pubmatic, uh, so on and so forth down the line. So again, it is a commoditized service and everybody's fighting in my view to find their position. Now Magnite's a little bit more interesting because if you look at that business, which I think maybe around six months ago, you have to fact check me on that. You know, if there were rumors like, hey, is this company going to stay public or will they be taken private? And if they were taken private, what is the asset that private equity would be looking at? And the rumor on the street was SpringServe. Mm-hmm. Why? Because someone's got to compete with Freewheel for to for the publisher ad server in the CTV space. And that was the asset that they picked up a while ago. And that's the asset that only that the main, at least what the rumors were, that that was the interesting thing. It was nothing was interesting about the SSP thing. Right. It was the ad server piece that was really interesting, and I would, I would say yes, that would be probably the most valuable asset given where we are with CTV and where it's heading. Um, so, but the other, I think, really interesting thing, the most interesting thing that the press has been picking up on, because look, if it bleeds, it leads, right? <laughs> so you've got trade desk that started the war. Yep. Right with, uh, what is it called? True Path? Uh, no, what's it called? Open Path, I believe. Sorry, Open Path. Uh, well, there's so many names out there. Now they just yes. announced Kokai and then they've got other things and everybody's got something. <laughs> so um, they say, hey, we're gonna go direct to publisher and we're gonna skip over the SSP. At first they kind of had to not walk back from it, but massage it a little bit, not to scare the SSPs. But now everybody knows what's happening out on the street that, you know, Trade Desk is actively going to publishers and with a value proposition. And, you know, they have a very big business, a very successful company. The probably, in my view, the most well-managed business in ad tech, which how do I know that? Because their market cap today is $37 billion. Now you could argue whether 
from an investor point of view, you could argue, what is the real value of the company? I write about that. Others write about that in equity research. But that's but that doesn't matter. What matters is, is that management is, everything's about management at the end of the day. And they've proven a lot of success because I think they have a good management system. Um, so they're being very aggressive and they've got a market to protect and they have to find ways to grow. Again, if overall top line revenue is growing by around 7% in the sector, then how are you going to grow in the next five years and find new growth areas? So Trade Desk has a 20% take rate publicly disclosed. You know, it's publicly disclosed. That's what they, it's very consistent over the years. And so if you take out SSPs and if they have around a 20% take rate, you're freeing up 20% of surplus value and finding um, publishers end up with more of that. They, they share in that surplus value by getting more working media and which pleases advertisers. Then you have the SSP response, which Magnite is part of. Um, so both Magnite and Pubmatic responded by saying, we've got our products um, to skip over the DSP and go talk to advertisers, right? Right. So that I think is, it will be very interesting to see how that plays out because ultimately, if advertisers really think about it, you don't need a DSP or an SSP. You could go direct into the publisher ad server. You don't even need it. Well, isn't that why there's talk of DSPs and SSPs kind of becoming almost one? Well, there is talk about that, but I would find that very difficult for Trade Desk to walk away from their narrative, which they're very, it's, you know, right. it's what Jeff talk, Jeff Green talks about. And I think it's the right place to be, which is we are a buy side advocate. That's where we play. I don't think they'll ever buy an SSP. Mm -hmm. Things can change. Things change all the time. Um, SSPs, you, it's like, you got to pick your side. It's like, are you a buy side advocate or a sell side advocate? Only Google really has the scale and the power and the money to get away with building the supply chain that they built, which is they've got Google Addicts and they've got DV360 and they've got the most important thing, they've got deterministic audience IDs at total scale, right? So that's a game changer. That's a very big, that's a very big differentiator. Yeah. You know? Okay. So it'll be interesting to see how that battle plays out over time, you know? All right. Well, that kind of covers the SSP space, I think. Um, so moving right along, uh, we also passed Critio and we passed Cognitive. So uh, I guess give us a quick description of what, what business that is. Yeah, so Critio, um, I'm very fond of because I worked there pre-IPO uh, back in um, 212, 214 in London. It was a great time to be around that company. I learned a lot. It was a, it was a great place to learn. Having come from Yahoo, where Yahoo had bought Right Media, and I worked with really great people there. Yahoo, fantastic company to work for, even I think even better today, now being reshaped by Apollo Private Equity um, and some you know great folks that are that are leading that effort. But having learned and got my teeth cut in programmatic at Yahoo because of Right Media, Brian O'Kelly's original company. Yeah. But then Critio really took it to a whole new level as far as um, programmatic education and learning and being really on the edge of things back in those days. So and it was a very strategic culture. So you learn a lot there, but anyway, Critio is a much different company today. Yeah. So it was a retargeting company, um, most successful at the time, most successful IPO ever in France, as far as technology companies go. Um, now it's a whole new management team. They're on their third CEO, um, Megan Clark, and she's great. And she's done a great job. And so 
effectively, that would have been a turnaround strategy if you looked at what she got when she came in. Now, recall that Critio bought a company for, I think, $250 million in 2017 called Hook Logic, and that was the original investment into retail media, which is this growth space for them. I like Critio going forward. I just think, again, what I said earlier about um, management, Critio's got a top management team. They always have. They've got a very good board. But it's the management team and it's the culture that comes down from management. And they're just the type of company that figures stuff out. And they will be relevant, I think, for a very long time because they'll always figure something out. And they're going to keep investing in these next growth areas, right? right? Like, so what, it's not the question of what's your return on investment today for investors. What are you investing in today? And what will be the return on the new invested capital right. down the road? And they're very good at making those types of investment decisions. One what, of the what's distinctions- What's their biggest challenge then? Well, yeah. Well, and one of the distinctions with, you know, with Trade Desk, they don't have a history out of acquisitions. Critio has made very good acquisitions. Mm -hmm. Trade Desk is more of like, we'll just build it ourselves if yes. they want to do it. Um, same thing with a Pubmatic and a Magnite. Pubmatic is more, we'll build it, we'll buy some things. They've done a little bit. They bought Martin AI, for example, recently, but Magnite is a company of acquisitions. Yep. Two different, very, two, very different strategies. Challenges for Critio, um, I really don't see many. Um, other than, I mean, they could be an acquisition target. There's been rumors throughout the years of that someone's going to buy them here and there. There was just that just popped up recently that there was a rumor that Trade Desk might have been looking at it, which could have been, I think, very interesting. There's some interesting synergies there for sure. Um, namely, Critio's in 32 markets or so, somewhere around there, 30 plus markets around the world, where uh, I think Trade Desk right now today is still something like 85% of the revenues are in the US. So yeah. that would be instant sort of international growth for them because it's about people on the ground that know the, the market. Just that alone could be interesting, but there's other, the other synergies that are even more valuable than that, but that's for another subject. So um, I don't see many challenges for them outside of the fact that Critio sees about 2.5 billion in gross ad spend. And it's mainly been historically a managed service business, meaning it's like an agency with really, really good technology. <laughs> you take the insertion order and your staff is, that staff is actually executing the media inside Critio's technology. Right. It's not that they don't have a self-service platform, they do, but that's been the traditional business. With retail media, it, it's, it, it becomes more of a SaaS sale um, than a managed service sale. And that's that's important. So if you while you are a managed service business where you're in that for a significant chunk of your revenues, um, and I think they're very good at this. I think Mighty Hive, the company that, for example, S4 Capital Media Monks bought, yep. they're very, very focused on, I think, not finding talent, but creating talent. And they're very, very good at process productivity. So if you have good process productivity and good line management, you don't need to hire the 11th person when, cause the, cause you have, because the 10 will do the job. Yeah. You don't need to, you don't need incremental labor because your productivity on your current base is, is growing. And they're very, very good at that in my view. Okay. Um, cognitive. Cognitive. Um, they're I, essentially a DSP, right? 
Yeah. So cognitive is, it's interesting. So it'll say something like, like everybody these days, a lot of like hyphenated words, right? Yeah. AI driven, data driven, right. privacy safe, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Just throw in the salad, right? The hyphen salad. <laughs> um, so, so, but at the end of the day, it looks to me like a D it's just a DSP at the end of the day yep. and you got, but how do you differentiate? You got to put that, that, that hyphen salad on top of stuff. And I think we can say that about most of the companies we're talking yeah, about today. Everybody does it. Yeah. And that's, that's just, that's just power for the course to in your sales pitch to somehow differentiate from the other, the, your other competitors who are probably pitching the same clients. Right. So the question is, is like, okay, well, how much of a business like Cognitive is an insertion order managed service business? Yeah. How good are you at growing productivity of staff if that's what your business is? They're high margin businesses, but but you have to watch your productivity because it eats into your it eats into your, into your, your margins. operating margins. Yeah. So um, I think though, for companies like that, I just wonder how much tough sledding is ahead, given that there there are companies out there with a lot of cash on their balance sheet, the Critios, the trade desks, et cetera. Um, and there just seems to be a general consolidation. Look, the last thing you want if you're a media agency is another screen for your people to go into. But it's always easy to send an insertion order out. Right. <laughs> so the client's got a media plan. Agencies are under stress constantly and even more than ever with staffing. You get to a situation typically like in Q4 around these heavy media buying times in the year. And they can't just staff up in 24 hours. It takes time to staff up. So what do they do? They're like, hey, we'll just take an insertion order. We'll send it out downstream to someone who can manage service it just to get the budget spent and get to fulfill the media plan. So that to me, if I'm in that business, I really don't like being in that business. The thing is, once you're in that business, it's hard to unwind from it. Right. It's like a little bit of crack. Right. You, you know what I mean? No, but you have to, you, it's really hard to unwind from an insertion order business because that's what you're known as. That's what they depend on you for. And therefore that's why your best bet is create talent, not find talent and productivity to expand your margins as much as possible. And those can be interesting businesses. But again, with consolidation of screens at agencies, um, it's, it's, there's a lot of companies out there in the Lumiscape. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at the Lumiscape and it's, you, you might as well be tripping because yeah. it's just so convoluted and confused. Okay. So let's talk about kind of the data side. Experian was one of the yachts we saw. So quick description of what they are, then we'll talk about potential and challenges. Yeah. So we've pretty much touched on a wide array of the supply chain, obviously yep. not advertisers because they're not on ad tech row. I even wonder if they even show up at any of those panels because <laughs> I've never really seen one that I'm sure they do on occasion, but I think they're you know, busy doing lots of other things, yeah. particularly the senior folks. Um, so, and then, you know, we could touch on agencies. Uh, there was FCB, there was Song, there was uh, Vinar. They're uh, there Vaynerx, too. yeah. Vaynar, right, they're there. So and we, we touched on DSPs, we touched on SSPs, SSPs, content verification spans across everything. Yep. And also then we have data, right? Um, I didn't see live ramp there. Now, normally they would be there. They probably have got some venue like um, like along along the, the quest set here somewhere. But with Experian, um, you know, lots of competitors in the space, everybody's trying to figure out how to 
be that, be a part of the next day to play. And, and right. here, here's how I break it down. It's actually quite simple. Programmatic exists. The raison d'etre of programmatic is to do audience targeting. What does that mean from a DSP and an auction perspective? It means something very simple. SSP sends bid request to DSP. DSP bidder, the machine, has one question. Is the user ID that was just sent to me in that bid request, is it in the audience segment that I wanna target, yes or no? If yes, bid, if no, don't bid, right? right? Now, that, all, that was all based built on third-party cookies. That's already 60, 70% gone because of, mainly because of Apple, but also Mozilla, et cetera. Um, and now Google has made their announcement and like, they're for real. Like this really is like, if you had to bet now, you're like, no, 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 this is not going to be some- Now you lay your money down. Yeah, yeah. This is not going to be some Sun Tzu, Sun Tzu art of war <laughs> kind of trick that they're doing. <laughs> they really are leaving the, the cookie behind yep. Yep. and they're ready with the, like they're, they're more ready with the replacement solution something within privacy sandbox. So within that though, you do have the experience, the transunions, um, God, I mean, everybody, there's so many players in this space. Axiom, absolutely. Axiom, you've got LiveRamp, you've got, of course, other venture-backed companies like Permutative, ID5. I mean, the list goes on and on, Yeah. right? And they're all making try to deals with each other. Oh, Trade Desk, UID 2.0, the open source thing that they're doing, making partnerships everywhere. So. Um, I don't know if any of that is going to be enough to overcome the potential ubiquity of what Google is going to bring to the market with Privacy Sandbox. Don't forget, Google is already in the publisher ad server in 95% of the cases. Right. Outside of CTV, right? CTV is a different story. Um, like we talked about that earlier, you got Freewheel, you got SpringServe, et cetera. So, but uh, an experience everybody wants, there's a role maybe for them because they do have great consumer data. They're a very smart company, well-managed company. So how do they monetize into this sort of next wave of programmatic? How do they monetize data to participate in how audience targeting will be done? Not in the future. It's happening right now because the cookie is already gone. Even though their agencies are probably a little bit far behind right now and they're going to have to play some catch up. Yeah. I think they may be making different bets, but now they're going to have to catch up. Okay. And, um, you know, here's the thing though, in that space, um, if you go back to where you, how did you make an audience segment in the past? You went inside your DSP platform. The DSP had a data marketplace of hundreds of sell data sellers. You'd go and buy your segment from a blue Kai, a live ramp, whoever, you know, there's hundreds of players in there. Make your segment, off you go, run your campaign. Right. Right. That's no longer a thing. It's still in place, but it's not going to be useful going forward. So what replaces that marketplace in a first party data world? Because now the data segments don't happen in the middle of the supply chain at the DSP. The data has moved to the edges where it's first party data in publisher in the publisher's hands and first party data in the advertiser's hands with clean rooms in the middle. Yes. So Experian, I think, has an interesting play in that clean room space on top of the type of, you know, the type of household data they have, the type of credit card data they have. That's interesting additive data on top of whatever the identifier is in the bid stream. Okay. Um, I think that kind of wraps up everyone that we saw that we was, was worth discussing. 
but I'd like to give you a, a quick chance to explain what's on your hat. It says programmatic, M-A-D-I-C, the musical. What's this? Yes. So last year at Cannes, I had a similar hat. I had a dozen of these made. Okay. And I, cause I had an idea and it was a crazy, silly idea goofing around with, you know, good friends in the industry. And I had said, I think I want to make a musical about programmatic because when you're in this space long enough, probably any industry, I mean, you could literally be in the paint industry after 20, 15, 20 years, you could probably make a musical about it. Right. <laughs> you know? Um, so I thought, well, this is interesting. How would we make a musical about programmatic? And there were things like, for example, um, what if we took like the storyline from the big short, which is like too big to fail? Yep. What if we took characterizations and certain scenes from the Wolf of Wall Street? Um, what if we took sort of the, uh, the satire of the Book of Mormon and then we threaded that through with the unbelievable flair and folly of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> what would we end up with if that it was about programmatic? And the thing is, where it got to was, imagine, this is where, you know, this, I, I live in Westport, Connecticut. We have a really famous playhouse called the Westport Playhouse. Sure. Pa Paul Newman was really the, thing, was the one who made it famous. Yeah. And, uh, you know, seats about 750 people. There's been lots of productions through there for many decades. But I was thinking... The audience, just like in program, the audience is the product. Right. And so <laughs> how do we build that audience interactivity um, or engagement into the production? So anyhow, last year at can I wore the hat. I'm in a lot of serious meetings. I'm go, go, go all week like everybody. Yeah. And everybody, I did it on purpose. I'm like, we are at an advertising conference. And the people would say, hey, what's up with your hat? I said, oh, I'm making a musical about programmatic. Thanks for asking. And they would say, wow. Um, you're either out of your mind, but then either they would say you're out of your mind, but then quickly they would say, hey, that's actually interesting. That could be really funny. <laughs> or the response was immediately, that's really cool. I can kind of see that. And then we would get, we would go into these impromptu brainstorms. So I made this hat because now we are trying to get this thing done. For it says 2024. So yes. next year. Yes. Next year. Um, started a crowd, a crowdfunding um, initiative to sell these hats for $100, looking to, you know, the goal is to sell 500 of them to raise an initial 50K, really for pre-production, okay. um, you know, expenses and to get some more people around this thing. But I'll tell you what happened. I walked into a conference, so this is Cannes last year. I go to a conference in London in November, and this woman who I'd never met before, we had a mutual friend, comes across the room and she says, because I was speaking on, I was speaking at, at, on stage there that morning, comes across the room right before I go on. She says, you're the guy making the musical. I want to help you. <laughs> all right. So the crowdfunding is going all right. That's yeah. And later on at dinner, she already had a show tune that she sang at dinner. <laughs> all right. So you're basically also crowdsourcing some of the content. The content, the team, everything. Um, I just want to executive produce this and put the right people around it to make a good production that an audience enjoys. Um, and also learn something about how program, because programmatic affects each and every one of us yes. hundreds of hundreds to thousands of times every day. Forget about data leakage, all the data stuff. It's like you, you are the product. And so I just think audiences could be compelled if the comedy is good, if the storyline brings them in, the storylines that we're going with, it's a voyage and return story, more or less. Um, 
We put four different storylines out there in a blog post yesterday, and we want the feedback from the community. Maybe someone's got a better idea. Right. Um, so anyhow, it could be something, you know, like Wizard of Oz. Dorothy goes to a magical land. She thinks it's going to be great. She's transformed and comes back a different person. <laughs> right. All right. All right. Well, I uh, look forward to seeing this on the Can main stage one of these days. I hope so. Tom, thank you so much thank for you, all this insight. Thank you, Michael. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.